0: Listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 56, The Gains from Trade, and I'm your host, James Fodor. In this episode, we're going to discuss the concepts of trade and exchange, including the purpose of these activities, why people trade, and in looking at that, we'll discuss the gains from trade and the very important concept of comparative advantage. We'll also take a look at some of the recent trends in global trade, how that's been changing in the past decades, and we'll briefly look at some of the major global trade institutions, including the, including the WTO and the World Bank, and their role in attempting to reduce barriers to trade, such as tariffs and other such things. I'll then conclude the episode with a brief discussion of the concept of buy local, which I think is relevant to understanding the, the concept of the gains from trade. Recommended pre listening for this episode is episode 12 on the price system, which will be helpful for understanding some of the concepts. So, let us begin. The first thing that I want to discuss, which I've mentioned before in a couple of the economics episodes, but I think it'll be it's important to, to go over again, is that the concept of opportunity cost. Because to understand the gains from trade and comparative advantage, you're, it's really necessary to understand this concept of opportunity cost. So when we think of a cost, we normally think of perhaps a price or something you have to pay. You know, how much does it cost to buy something? It costs twenty dollars because I have to give twenty dollars over to the person behind the counter in order to buy the thing. That's what we normally think of when we think of cost. We think of an explicit expenditure. But in economics, the concept of cost is broader than that, and hence we have this phrase opportunity cost. Opportunity cost refers to whatever you give up, or specifically the value of whatever you give up, in order to get something. So, for example, if I have to go to the supermarket to buy a loaf of bread, say the loaf of bread costs $2, that the price of the bread is $2, that's the explicit cost, but the, f- the full cost, the opportunity cost of the bread, is more than $2, because you have to factor in the time and energy that I needed to go to the supermarket to buy the thing. So maybe it took me 10 minutes... However much I value 10 minutes of my time, whatever effort or uh, disutility I get from having to, you know, get up and, and go out and get the bread, that needs to be factored into the full cost. And set. so when we're talking about the opportunity cost of that loaf of bread, that would include the $2 you spend actually buying the bread, plus the cost of the time and energy and whatever else is necessary to, to purchase the bread. That's the full op- or opportunity cost. The, the opportunity cost always consists of the value of the next best thing that you would have done or the The value of the next best alternative that's foregone in order to get something. Another good example of this is the cost of going to university or to college. Again, the explicit cost is just the cost of tuition and textbooks and whatever else. But that's certainly not the full cost because the opportunity cost would have to also factor in the lost income that you could have been earning if you were going, if you were instead working. So so this highlights the importance of considering the value of the next best alternative. It it doesn't make any sense to look at the value of the the fifth next best alternative or the, the tenth next best alternative, because if you didn't go to university, say, you wouldn't be doing the fifth next best thing. You would, if you're a sensible person, do the next best thing. You would always do the next best thing if you don't do the best thing. If the best thing is ruled out, well, then you go to the next best thing. And then if that's ruled out for some reason, you go to the third next best thing. So you always work down sequentially. That's why we always look at the value of the next best alternative foregone. So if you don't go to university, let's say the next best thing you could be doing with your time and energies is working. And so when we're examining the cost of going to university, we have to factor in not just the explicit costs, but also the foregone earnings that you would have been able to get if you had been working instead. Starting up your own business is another good example. You can't determine if it's a good idea to start up a business just by looking at whether or not you're making a profit. You also need to consider what the opportunity cost of your time and energies are. If you weren't running a business, maybe you could be working for someone else and earning a certain salary, and so you're giving that up in order to run the business, so you have to include that as a cost of running the business. That's part of your opportunity cost. So opportunity cost is a very, very important concept particularly in regards to trade, but but in in economics in general. And any rational decision-maker, in any situation at all, must always consider the opportunity costs of of any decision they're making, including lost profits, lost earnings, lost production, lost time, lost pleasure, lost sleep, uh, etc. Okay, so that's the concept of opportunity cost. Bear that in mind, because I'll be referring to it a number of times throughout the remainder of the episode, so it's a useful thing to have in the back of your head. Now we'll move on to talking about the gains from trade. So so this is the idea of what is the purpose of trade? Why do people exchange things uh, w- with each other? Speci- or, and particularly, why do we trade between different countries? Well, the main reason for trading between countries or tra- trading between cities or people or whatever is because of the gains from trade. So what are the gains from trade? Gains from trade refers to the net benefits that agents, so that could be people or c- countries or corporations or whatever, that agents gain from Voluntary trading relationships between each other. In technical terms, it's the increase in producer and consumer surplus resulting from lower trade barriers, lower barriers to trade. So, so where do these gains come from? They seem a little bit magical somehow. If I have an apple and you have some money, and then we swap an apple and money, then you know we swap the apple for the money. Then, then somehow we're we're both better off. Like, where does that gain come from? It the gain comes from the fact that we each value the things that we are trading differently. I have the money but I prefer the apple you have the apple but you prefer the money so if we each swap then we're both better off we both have a higher utility or another way of saying that is we gain in consumer surplus I've talked about some of these concepts in previous episodes so if they're a bit confusing uh, look back at at some of the previous economics episodes but the gains from trade fundamentally come because uh, both parties have something that the other party wants and values more uh, than what they currently have so by by swapping around the resources or the goods that are in your possession, both parties can be better off. And this is known as the gains from trade. There are two different types of gains from trade, static and dynamic effects, or static and dynamic gains. Static gains refers to the increase in social welfare, or increase in, in total utility, that comes from maximizing national output due to more optimal utilization of your country's resources. So, to break this down a bit, when a country engages in trade, they can increase... The amount that they produce, or the value of what they produce, because of more efficient utilisation of resources. We'll talk a bit that we'll talk about this more when we get to comparative advantage next. But for the moment, we'll just take that as as given that you can produce more or more valuable uh, things as a, as a, as a country, or indeed as a city, or, or whatever, if you trade rather than trying to do everything yourself. And so that so engaging in trade pre- yields at this static benefit because this is a one-off game. Say we we go from being Self-sufficient, or as a country, a country that's self-sufficient is known as uh, an autarkic country, uh, which is engaging in autarky, that is not trading, just producing its own stuff. If you go, if a country goes from a state of autarky to a state of trade, then maybe they gain 20% extra output, or 50% extra output, or something like that. But the point is, that's going to be a static effect. It's a one-off gain. They don't gain that every year afterwards, or something like that. It's a one-off gain resulting from a more efficient use of resources. So rather than producing something really uh, at a really expensive price here we, we buy it from overseas for a much cheaper price and then produce something else instead, so we 're using our resources more efficiently but that 's the static gains from trade, which are the ones people sort of mostly focus on, but arguably more important are the dynamic gains from trade. These are a bit more subtle, but they're as I said arguably even more important. They are the benefits that you get from engaging in trade, which are manifested in an accelerated rate of economic growth. Uh, That is the rate at which the the economy expands, or the rate at which you can increase production. And this results from faster transmission of new technologies and expertise, also greater competition. So instead of just competing with a couple of uh, companies from your local country, you compete with countries all across the world. So there's an increased impetus towards increased efficiency and and innovation and things like that. Also, the the larger scale of production and bigger markets often allow reduction in price. So if you're only producing a few thousand cars for the domestic market, that's probably going to result in a higher price per car than if you're producing millions of cars for the world market. So this this profusion of technologies, increasing competition, greater scale of production, and various other factors all tend to lead to an increase in the rate of economic growth in countries which are more engaged in trade. And and indeed, the statistical evidence bears this out, that, that countries open to trade grow more rapidly than countries that are not open to trade. So, uh, that's a bit about the gains from trade. That's why countries trade and why why people and firms trade. Now let's talk about comparative advantage, which is probably the, the single most important concept that I wanted to discuss in this episode. Comparative advantage is one of the hardest concepts to understand in economics, I think, because it's very counterintuitive, or at least it is to a lot of people. So I'll try and do my best to explain it, and we'll see how we go. Before we get to comparative advantage, though, let me explain a related concept which is a lot easier to understand, which is that of absolute advantage. So when we talk about advantage, we're talking about who can do something better. We could be comparing two people, or we could be comparing two businesses, or we could be comparing two countries. It, it doesn't really matter. Usually the example is given with countries, but it works just as well with people that the concept applies regardless of the scale. That's not relevant. So let's think about it in terms of, in terms of countries for the moment. Absolute advantage occurs when one country can produce things to produce more from the same resources. So that could be more output using the same number of workers, or more output using the same amount of iron ore, or more agricultural output using the same amount of land, anything like that. Exactly what the input is is going to vary from case to case. But the basic idea of of absolute advantage is that if you have an absolute advantage in producing something, you can produce more than the other person or the other country can using the same resources. Obviously, if you have more resources, then you can produce more, but that's not very interesting. What we're interested in is who is relatively more efficient. So if you can produce more with the same amount of resources, or equivalently, you can produce the same amount using less resources, then you have an absolute advantage over the other person or the other, the other country. So, for example, if we opened up a factory with a thousand workers and an, a certain amount of iron ore and steel and other things that, that were, and electricity, uses input. If we opened up this same factory in two different countries, Mexico and the USA, let's say, and the American factory is able to produce twice as many cars as the Mexican factory, that means the US factory has an absolute advantage of two to one relative to the Mexican factory, even though it's using the same resources and the same number of workers. Now, how could you have such an advantage? Well, an absolute advantage like that would be could, it could be a product of more advanced technology or more efficient use of those resources, better management practices, all sorts of things like that. There are many different ways one can use a given amount of resources to produce output. So if you can manipulate the use of resources in such a way as to increase total output relative to your rival, the other country, the other person, whatever, then you you have an absolute advantage over there. So, so this concept of absolute advantage is, I think, relatively easy to understand because it's just about who can produce more with the same resources. Now, let's think about the concept of comparative advantage, which is related to absolute advantage, but different. So, the concept of comparative advantage uh, means that if you have a comparative advantage in something, if a country or a person has a comparative advantage in producing something compared to another country or person, that means you can produce it with a lower opportunity cost. So, I'll say that again. A A person or country has a comparative advantage in producing a good. If they can produce that good, with a lower opportunity cost than some other person or country now what's important here is that it doesn't matter who is more efficient in the sense of producing more with fewer resources all that matters for, for a comparative advantage is what their opportunity cost is a sort of a simpler way of saying of, of talking about comparative advantage is just to say that if you can produce something cheaper then you have a comparative advantage in producing that thing absent differences in taxes or other things like that but If it's just a product of market forces and you can produce something more cheaply, then you have a comparative advantage in doing that. Now, you might think that comparative advantage and absolute advantage sound like the same thing. I mean, surely if you can make something with less resources, you can be more efficient in making it, then you're going to have a comparative advantage. So, aren't absolute advantage and comparative advantage just the same thing? Well, the answer is no, they are not the same thing. They might be the same thing. They might happen to be the same thing in a particular case, but they needn't be. So the big difference is that comparative advantage incorporates the concept of opportunity cost, whereas absolute advantage does not. So absolute advantage doesn't say anything about what I have to give up in order to produce something. Maybe I'm really efficient at producing cars. In fact, let's take our U.S. and Mexican factories example. We established that the U.S. factory has a an absolute advantage in producing cars because it can produce more with the same number of resources. However, what does the American factory, or maybe we could think about the American economy as a whole, what does that have to give up in order to produce those cars? Well, it has to give up a fair bit, because if it wasn't using those workers and that land and the expertise and the raw material, the machinery, if it wasn't using all of that stuff to make to make cars, it could use it to make something else pretty that was quite valuable, because the US is an advanced industrialised economy, and so it has lots of high-value uses for its raw materials and for its labour. In other words, it has a very high opportunity cost for, for using those things to produce something like cars. Whereas, perhaps, the factory in Mexico has a much lower opportunity cost for producing cars because if it didn't use that steel and those workers and the land and the other things for producing cars, presumably it would have used them for something else, but arguably, or at least let's say in our example, the other things that it would have been using those resources to produce would not be nearly as valuable as the cars. So, what it's giving up is much less valuable than what America is giving up to produce the cars. And so, this means that if the opportunity cost of the Mexican factory is sufficiently low, then it will have a comparative advantage in producing cars, even though the American factory has an absolute advantage in producing cars. And again, this is possible because of the differences in opportunity cost. America, The American factory can outproduce the Mexican Mexican factory 2 to 1, just purely in terms of number of cars produced per worker or per electricity use or something like that. But that's not really very important. When I go and buy a car, I don't care how many man hours it took to make or how much steel it used. What I care about is how much it costs to make. And how much it costs to make really is dependent primarily, or in some sense only, but here we'll say primarily, on the opportunity cost. In other words, if a car took lots of steel and many man hours to make, but those that steel and those man hours wouldn't have been used for anything else of value if they haven't been used to make the car, so in that case, the opportunity cost is effectively zero, then the car can still be quite cheap because they're not giving up very much to make the car. Whereas, in the case of the... So, suppose that's the case of the Mexican car. Not much is being given up to produce the car, so, therefore, the cost of the car is actually quite small. Whereas, in the US case, a lot's being given up to produce the car because those resources could have been used for something else that had a very high value. So, therefore, the opportunity cost is high. Therefore, the price of the car, the cost of the car, is higher. And the reason... that The reason that opportunity cost uh, translates directly into price is because I have to bid against all of the other people who want to use those resources. I wanting the, me wanting the car, I have to bid, that is, you know be willing to pay a high enough price so that I can get my preference against all of the other people who wanted to use the same labor and the same resources that were in fact used to make my car so the people who wanted to use those to make televisions the people who wanted to use them in the financial industry the people who wanted to use them in the building industry wherever else people wanted to use those resources I have to bid against all of those people and offer a higher price for the car in order to get them to in order to get the factory to use the resources in the way that I want them to whereas in the mexican case I don't have to bid against all of these other people because there aren't these other people who are who are wanting to use the resources. The opportunity cost, the opportunity cost is much lower because there aren't alternative competing uses of the resources. That's what it means to have an opportunity cost. Therefore, I don't have to bid against all these other people. I only have to bid against very small value or very low value alternative uses of the resources. Hence, I don't have to pay a very high price for the car. So, this concept of comparative advantage is why so much manufacturing is outsourced from countries like America and Europe to countries in Asia or in South America and other countries, it's not because, and this is really important to understand, it's not primarily because, say, the factories in India or Taiwan or wherever, or China, it's not because they're more efficient in the sense that they can produce more per person. Some In some instances, that might be the case, but primarily, that's not the reason. The reason is that they have a lower opportunity cost because the workers in china if they weren't working in the factories they'd be working in, uh, in agriculture which is what many of them were doing for which is a very low value a very low value added industry and so their opportunity cost is much lower whereas the workers in america or in europe if they weren't working in the factories that they, they, they have much higher value working somewhere else, even if it's only a service industry or something like that. People are, people in the developed countries are still willing to pay a, a very high wage in terms of, um, globally speaking, uh, for, for workers in service industries and other places like that or, or in business or wherever else. So the opportunity cost of the labour of the workers is much, much higher in Western countries than it is in India or, or wherever else. So therefore the opportunity cost of producing manufactured goods in Western countries is, uh, for the most part, much, much higher than in countries like India and China. Therefore, it's much cheaper to produce these goods in India and China. And so, therefore, India and China have a comparative advantage in producing these goods because they can produce them at a much lower opportunity cost. Now, there's another important thing to understand about comparative advantage, and also how it differs from absolute advantage. It's possible for one country to have an absolute advantage in everything, or, conversely, to have an absolute advantage in nothing. So maybe, for example, if one country was just really sophisticated and advanced, maybe the US or, I don't know, Switzerland or something, it could have a comparative advantage in everything. That is, it could produce... Sorry. It could have an absolute advantage in everything. That is, it could produce anything you could imagine using less resources than anyone else could. That's perfectly possible. Maybe it's so technologically advanced it can do that. Similarly, if you're really underdeveloped, really poor, really unsophisticated, very backward, then you might have an absolute advantage in nothing. Maybe it's you require more resources to produce the same thing than compared to any other country. That's possible as well. So you don't have an absolute advantage in anything. However, comparative advantage is different. It's impossible to have a comparative advantage in everything. Similarly, it's impossible to have a comparative advantage in nothing. Every country has a comparative advantage in something. And the reason for that is because opportunity cost is always relative. If you're really good at doing everything, that means your opportunity cost of everything is very high. So if I'm really good at, say, agriculture and the industry, then if I put more workers into industry, I'm taking away lots of output from agriculture because I'm really good at doing that as well. So if I'm really good at doing agriculture and industry, then my opportunity cost of both is very high. Whereas if I'm if I'm really bad at doing both, then my opportunity cost of both is low. And so, what makes the difference is not whether I'm really good at doing things or really bad at doing things, but what makes the difference is, in terms of opportun- in terms of comparative advantage, is which I'm relatively better at doing. Maybe I'm really bad at everything. Maybe I'm a developing country, which is, um, really backward, has, has, um, very old technology and, and, uh, unskilled labor force and so on. But pe- perhaps my disadvantage in agriculture is less than my disadvantage in industry. That is, maybe I'm ten, only one-tenth as efficient as Western countries, at industry, but I'm one-fifth as efficient in agriculture, just to to make up some numbers. In that case, my comparative advantage is agriculture. Even though I'm much worse at agriculture than the Western countries, I can still have a comparative advantage in that, because the opportunity cost in agriculture for me is much lower than the opportunity cost of agriculture in the West. Because remember, Western countries are great at agriculture, but if they move workers from industry into agriculture to increase agricultural output, then they're giving up heaps of industrial output. They have a much higher opportunity cost whereas my opportunity cost is much lower because I'm hardly giving up anything to move extra workers into agriculture. And so therefore I have a comparative advantage in agriculture whereas the West has a comparative advantage in industry. It's, it's not possible to have a comparative advantage in, in everything. In fact, the only way that is possible is if all the countries were exactly the same. They were exactly as good at producing everything or, or in exactly the same proportion were... Um, yeah, that There was no relative difference in their ability to produce anything, which is just totally unrealistic and never going to happen, because it's never going to be the case that everyone's equal at everything. So, as long as there are relative differences in your ability to produce different things, then there there is going to exist comparative advantages. And as long as there are comparative advantages, everyone will have a comparative advantage in something. So, this is another important lesson about the whole outsourcing question. Some people are concerned that, you know, all of the industrial jobs or manufacturing jobs are being outsourced to India and China and other countries like that, then there won't be any jobs left for Americans. Well, although there are lots of complexities to this issue, uh, certainly at a first level of analysis, this is false, because... From looking at things from a comparative advantage perspective, it's not possible for India and China to have a comparative advantage in everything. They might have a comparative advantage in some things, for example manufacturing, but that means that Western countries must have a comparative advantage in something else. Now, exactly what that something else is might be slightly difficult to determine. It may be something like education or financial services or just, just business consulting in general or it might be more advanced technology services or all sorts of things, are, 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 are potentials. But the point is, it's not possible for one country to have a comparative advantage in everything, and so it's not possible for one country to for, for one country to be completely unemployed, but no one can get work because it's always cheaper to make something somewhere else. That's impossible. Think about the reason why that's impossible. Imagine that everything was imagine that we had this bizarre situation where somehow everyone in America was unemployed because they can't com- because no one can compete with things in China. Well, what would the opportunity cost be? of hiring a worker in America to produce something, anything. Agriculture, financial services, manufacturing, anything. Well, the opportunity cost is basically zero because they weren't doing anything else, were they? that You're not taking them away from anything because we've just said they're unemployed. So therefore, the opportunity cost of doing this in America, of producing anything in America, in this imaginary example where all Americans are unemployed, is zero, or basically zero. Whereas in China, what's the opportunity cost of producing something extra? Well, we don't know, but it's certainly going to be more than zero because they're all busy producing everything that's not being produced in the US. So therefore, we've just established that in this hypothetical example where everything is being outsourced to China, that the opportunity cost of producing stuff in the U.S. is less than the opportunity cost of producing stuff in China, which means, therefore, that the U.S. rather than China would have a comparative advantage, and therefore, it would be cheaper to make things in the U.S. than in China. Now, obviously, we would never get to that situation. The, the point is to illustrate why you couldn't get to that situation, because as essentially as things are outsourced to China, the opportunity cost of producing things in the U.S. is going to, or certain things in the in the U.S. is going to decline. And the opportunity cost of producing things in China is going to increase because the value of the things that they are using their workforce for is, is increasing as, as they're able to sell and export things to, to Western countries. And so at some point, those are going to equilibrate, at, at which point you're not going to have any further outsourcing to China because the, the opportunity costs are relatively equal. So it, it just simply cannot be the case that all of the jobs of any country are outsourced to another country whether you're talking about outsourcing to developed countries or from developed countries or whatever it's just impossible from a comparative advantage point of view countries will always have a comparative advantage in something and therefore there will always be some area of employment for, for that for that country to engage in now there are certainly other factors there which we just don't have time to get into about complexities and and wage and sticky wages and other things like that but but again we're just looking at the trade aspect for now So, the pattern of trade we expect to see as a result of comparative advantage is that each country will produce the thing, or even regions within different countries will produce what they have a comparative advantage in. Because that means they're producing at the lowest opportunity cost, which means, in turn, that resources are being used most efficiently. Obviously, if if India can produce... Well, let's say if China can produce manufactured goods at a much lower opportunity cost, whereas America can produce financial services or whatever else at a much lower opportunity cost than China can, then it makes sense to have all the financial services done in America and all of the manufacturing done in China. Again, I'm just using you know simple examples here to illustrate the point, because but but the point is if that pattern of production prevails, then the total opportunity cost of the whole world goes down, and therefore the entire world's resources are being used more efficiently, which means you can get more output from the same resources. And hence, everyone is better off. That is why that both the US and China are able to both benefit f- f- from trade. Now that doesn't mean that every single person in the in the country benefits. Obviously the American manufacturer workers who are losing their jobs, they personally don't benefit, at least not in the short run. But Because remember, there are static and there are dynamic effects, and so those are play off against each other. Everyone benefits from the dynamic effects, but not everyone benefits from the static effects. But anyway, both countries are able to benefit because they're both gaining access to a more efficient allocation of resources, which means that the total pie, the total size of everything that's produced, the total amount of stuff that we have, gets bigger because we're using our resources more efficiently. We've found a way to make stuff without giving up as much. That's a different way of saying uh, opportunity cost is lower. As a result of that, everyone is able to to benefit. China is able to benefit, and the US is able to benefit. In engaging in trade in this way, they have lowered their opportunity costs, therefore increased the total output, and they are both then able to take a portion of that increased output for themselves, and hence both benefit. So it's not a a zero-sum game, is what economists tend to say. In other words, if China benefits, that doesn't mean the US loses. There, again, there are certain sort of circumstances where this might be the case, but in general in international trade, this simply isn't the case because of the concept of comparative advantage. Each country will specialize in producing what they have the lowest opportunity cost of producing, thereby reducing the total opportunity cost of the whole world and therefore increasing the total amount of output that the whole world can produce and hence everyone or you know everyone on aggregate uh, can can be better off. And again, what I've been speaking about in terms of comparative advantage is mostly focusing on the static benefits, the one-off benefits of trade. There are also the dynamic benefits that I mentioned before, and those compound over time so that it gets sort of more and more, uh, the benefits of, of this sort of open trade increase over time, and everyone will benefit from those. Okay, so hopefully that was a relatively clear explication of the principle of comparative advantage, and that really underpins why... We have so much trade, particularly global trade, but it also works to understand domestic trade as well. You know, so why I specialize in doing some things, while other people specialize in doing other things, and we trade because it allows us to have a comparative to do things that we are relatively good at doing, and then outsource the other things that we're not as good at doing. You know, so that's why you have someone come to mow your lawn, and instead of mowing your own lawn, mowing your own lawn, it's it's cheaper because they specialize in doing that. Okay, now there's a couple of other uh, aspects of trade that I want to discuss. One is the concept of middlemen. These are, these are traders, like uh, retailers and wholesalers and merchants and, and so on, who buy things and then move them around or change them in a fairly subtle way and then sell them again. So basically they're just a conduit for goods and services. They buy from one person, they move them perhaps, and then sell them on. Merchants and intermediaries in general have generally been reviled throughout history. Because they're seen as being parasites, they're seen as not contributing to anything. You know, they just buy at low prices, sell at high prices. They just make a profit at the expense of everyone else, right? I mean, who needs them? They're, they're just leeches sucking resources from the rest of society without contributing anything. Everyone knows that, right? Well, it's not so simple. So perhaps that happens sometimes, but in general, middlemen actually fulfil a very important function. To understand that, probably the easiest one to think about is the, is the supermarket. The, the supermarket where you buy goods and where you, where you buy food is. an an intermediary. They don't really produce anything. All they do is buy their inputs from wholesalers or perhaps direct from manufacturers or farms or whatever, and then sell them on to consumers at a markup. So it it doesn't seem like they're actually providing anything, but in fact they are. What they provide is a very important service, which is that of engaging in all of these large transactions – and bringing things, bringing the goods that the consumers are interested in, into a single central location. Imagine if you had to go to all of the different farms or factories to buy all of the different uh, consumer goods, or even just foods that you consume. So you have to go to a dairy farm to buy uh, dairy products. You have to go to a meat farm to buy meat products. You have to go to different uh, farms to buy rel- different fruits and vegetables, some of which are overseas, by the way. You have to then go to various different uh, manufacturing plants to buy different types of processed food. Uh, Who knows how many trips this would be? Dozens, hundreds of trips to to different places all all over the city or indeed all over the country. That's completely infeasible, obviously. So it's much easier if one person or one company does this, brings all the goods together in a single place and arrays them out in a relatively attractive and and comfortable, nice environment to uh, make selection and purchasing of these goods uh, as easy as is feasible. And uh, if you have one person doing this and then the consumer's just going to that place and buying them, it's much easier. So that is the value or the service that middlemen, in this case specifically we're looking at supermarkets, that's the service they provide. It's bringing all of the goods into one place and arraying them in an attractive way and making it easy for consumers to access them. And consumers are willing to pay something for that. They're willing to pay the markup that the supermarkets uh, require. That, it, that is the the higher price that, that the supermarket charges as opposed to buying direct from the farm or direct from the manufacturer. Because the markup is relatively small, consumers are... Uh, well, usually relatively small, consumers are willing to pay for it because they get a substantial benefit from only having to go to the one place instead of having to go to all of these other places all over the country. So that's the value of a retailer, and it doesn't just apply to supermarkets. I just used that as an example. It really applies to any type of shop. You go there and have a selection of many different brands and and product lines and qualities that you can select from, as opposed to having to go to all of the manufacturers individually and and then compare those, which would just be much less convenient. Middlemen provide other services as well, other than just collecting things together. They often transport goods from one place to another. Clearly, that is a service because transportation costs money. Another thing they do is engage in, is bear some of the risk. So, for example, they buy something where it is relatively cheap and then maybe transport it or store it for a certain period of time and then sell it at a later time hoping to get a higher price. But when they do that, they're always taking some risk. Perhaps the price won't go up as much as they had hoped, or perhaps it will even go down. So they're bearing some risk there. And the reason people are willing to pay for that is because people generally don't like bearing risk themselves. So we'd prefer that someone else bore that risk and then just be willing to pay a certain markup. Now, in general, middlemen can only stay in business if the service that they provide, whether it's bearing risk or transporting goods or collecting them in a single location or whatever... They can only stay in business if the value of that exceeds the markup that they are charging consumers. If it, if the value did not exceed the markup, then consumers would just do business directly. They would buy goods and transport them themselves, or they would just go straight to the manufacturer. As indeed some people do, because they find it to be cheaper. But if, if it was, if it was a bad deal for everyone, then the middleman would just go out of business. Okay, so that's a bit on middlemen and the important role that they play in in the economy. Now, we're going to have a brief look at some trends in global trade and a bit on trade institutions and the the role that they play. So, you've probably heard of the phrase globalisation. That's the term that's used a fair bit now, maybe a little bit less than a couple of years ago, I don't know. Globalisation refers to the increasing scale and internationalisation of pretty much everything, of politics of culture, but particularly of, of business and trade. Globalisation is not really new. it's It's been going on for hundreds of years. So, you know, ever since the in the 15th century, the European explorers began to try and find a alternate trade sea routes to India, and they began to explore off the coast of Africa and, you know, eventually discover the new world and so on and so on. That sort of began the modern process of, of globalisation. But modern globalisation is usually dated to the end of World War II, uh, when a number of international organisations were founded, whose purpose was to facilitate greater global trade and cooperation, things like that. And part of this was in response to World War II. There was a desire not to have a return to the sort of autarkic, uh, self-sufficiency-minded uh, mindset that, that prevailed during, say, the 1930s and 40s, particularly with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. And So so there was a desire to move towards greater integration and cooperation and trade for, for mutual benefit. And so we had a number of these organizations formed, in particular the World Trade Organization, or the WTO, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, the World Bank, and also the GATT, or the GAT, and I can't remember what that stands for. But the, the purpose of these organizations, well, each of them had a slightly different purpose, but the, the basic purpose was to promote trade and economic cooperation between different countries. And so, as a result of this, the amount of global trade has increased dramatically since World War Two. Indeed, since the end of World War Two, the amount of world trade has grown much more quickly than world production has, something like two to three times as rapidly. So, obviously you expect trade to increase as countries get richer and produce more stuff, but world trade has increased dramatically more, several times as much as you would predict simply based on the the growth in production. So, this is a clear indication that trade's becoming more important, especially international trade partly this is due simply to lower transportation costs containerization and other things but it's also in large part due to the work of uh, particularly the WTO and one of the main focuses of the World Trade Organization is to liberalize global trade by reducing barri- by reducing trade barriers and we'll come back to that in a moment but trade barriers are things like tariffs and quotas which restrict trade between countries the world trade organization's main purpose is to try and ha- Organize international agreements for countries to reduce these barriers to trade so that we can have more trade and more specialization and, and hence increase productivity. And there have been a series of agreements of agreements that have been made by uh, lots of different countries uh, in the past few decades, each of which further lowers the barriers to trade or at least that's the idea. And so part of that, uh, part of the reason for this dramatic growth in world trade has been the the success of the World Trade Organization's efforts to to liberalize trade. Another important of these organizations is, as I mentioned before, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. This organization, uh, the purpose of this organization is to promote monetary cooperation and secure financial stability uh, in the world, and also to facilitate international trade and promote economic growth. Most countries in the world are members, as, as indeed most countries in the world are also members of the World Trade Organization. The IMF's activities are a bit broader than the WTO, so they do participate, I think, in some trade agreements, but they're also involved in making loans to poor countries and to countries in uh, various financial difficulties. So, for example, if there's a currency crisis, they they might organise a a loan to stabilise the currency of a particular country. They also, as I said, organise developmental loans to help countries in Africa and Southeast Asia and so on develop their economies. They provide expert assistance for economic reforms and development programmes and things like this. The World Bank, which is another of these organizations that I mentioned, is kind of similar to the IMF, although they have a more specific focus on making loans to developing countries for the purpose of economic growth. So the IMF does some of that, but the World Bank is more specifically focused on doing that. Again, most countries in the world are members of the World Bank. In addition to these three main international organizations, the WTO, the IMF and the World Bank, there are also localized trade blocks or trade agreements or treaties between groups of countries to establish some sort of special trading relationships or often lower trade barriers and things like this or sometimes to adopt a common currency. So the European Union is probably the most famous of these. Many of the countries in the European Union have abolished border restrictions between them so you can move freely across the borders they have effectively adopted free trade amongst the countries which means there's no real restrictions to transportation of goods or services and sale of them between the different countries and they have adopted common policy common trade policies towards uh, external countries and uh, a v- wide variety of other uh, policies as well designed to facilitate trade within the european bloc and uh, as you also probably know they've adopted a common currency the euro another co- another prominent Free trade agreement is NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Organis- uh, Free Trade Association between Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, which is a free trade agreement which was signed I think in '94 or something like that. Again, whose purpose was to promote trade between these three countries, lower trade barriers, and and so on. There are many other such uh, treaties and organisations as well, but those are two of the uh, most well known ones. Now, a bit of uh, a bit more of a explanation of what we mean by trade barriers. So as I said before, trade barriers are generally laws or other types of legislation or government interventions that restrict trade, particularly between countries, although it can be within countries as well. So the most common one of these is a tariff. A tariff is just a tax on imports, which serves to raise the price of imports above what you would otherwise pay, and therefore serves to discourage people from buying those imports. So, you know, it might be cheaper to buy imports from another country, but then if there's a massive tax levied on them, or even a substantial tax, then it's no longer cheaper and you just buy domestic. Generally, the purpose of tariffs is, well, to raise money for the government, just like any other tax, but also to keep out foreign competition. The idea is that one should, for whatever reason, protect one's local industries from foreign competition, and so you levy taxes on the foreign competition, and but you don't levy the same taxes on the domestic firms this is an important difference if if you levy the same tax on all firms foreign or domestic then it it doesn't really make any difference that's not a tariff it's only a tariff if you spe- if you specially levy it or place it on foreign imports and not on domestic production that then it becomes a tariff and it becomes a barrier to trade it makes trade more difficult and more expensive because you're eff- effectively giving domestic producers an artificial advantage over the, the foreigners Reducing tariffs is one of the main focuses of the WTO, and since the 1930s, average world tariffs have fallen to about 20% of their previous levels, so one-fifth of their previous levels, which I think is quite an impressive achievement, actually. So, And again, this is one of the big reasons for the dramatic acceleration or dramatic increase in the total amount of of global trade since the 30s and 40s is because of this dramatic reduction in average tariff levels. It's important to understand that consumers in the country levying the tariffs almost invariably lose out because they have to pay higher prices as a result of the tariff. So suppose I could buy something for $50 imported from Japan, but then there's a $50 tariff levied on it. Now I have to pay $100 for it. If I want to buy it imported, or, and then maybe I have a choice between paying the $100, 50 plus the 50 tax, or buying it for $90 from a domestic producer. Well, I go the $90 for a domestic producer, and so imports go down. But also, I have to go from paying $50 for an import to $90 for a domestically produced one. So as a consumer, I lose out. The only reason you ever w- will need tariffs is if one, if a country's domestic industries are uncompetitive. So if, uh, to take our example, suppose that the US producer could produce and sell the good for $40, Whereas the, the Japanese version costs fifty dollars. Well well then I would never even think about buying it from Japan. I would just buy it from the American one because it's cheaper. In that case, the tariff is irrelevant because I wouldn't have bought it from there anyway, it's already more expensive, and so that the tariff doesn't make any difference. So tariffs only ever do anything if they are acting to reduce efficiency by keeping out lower priced competition and then, therefore propping up or sustaining relatively uncompetitive domestic industries. This is and this is a bad idea, economically speaking, because it means that you're misallocating resources. The fact that Japan can sell something cheaper than cheaper than the American firm should be telling you, or as an economist, we know that it's telling us that Japan has a lower opportunity cost of producing this thing, and we have a higher opportunity cost. That means that, w- that if we make it here, we're giving up more than if we let the Japanese make it and then, and then buy it from them. And th- that's silly. Why would you get something, if I want this good, why would I get it by giving up more when I could have got it by giving up less? If you phrase it in those terms, tariffs essentially don't make any sense at all. And most economists, as a result, oppose most tariffs because they are inefficient. They distort the allocation of resources so that we have to give up more stuff to get the same thing. Or, put differently, we get less from our resources than we could otherwise have gotten if we had used them more efficiently. Uh, There are other factors about tariffs, like, for example, many developing countries levy tariffs because it's easier to collect those type of taxes than other type of taxes, and therefore, if you cut the tariffs too much, the governments can't collect revenue from other sources, and therefore the government programs suffer. And this is a lesson that was sort of learned by the the WTO and the World Bank the hard way, uh, because they were arguably uh, insufficiently sensitive to the local conditions. And there's certainly many valid criticisms of these three organizations, by the way, but I don't want to get into that details too much of that. I just want to point out there are sometimes valid reasons for tariffs, and if that's the most, uh, the easiest and most efficient way of collecting a tax, then that might be one justification. For, certainly for developed countries, that, that isn't the case anymore. Another justification that's sometimes given for tariffs is that it's necessary to protect this industry for reasons of national security. So, you know, we, we can't risk losing this industry and only having, uh, only be able to rely on imports, because then if we have a war or some other crisis, then we won't be able to reduce it domestically. That's more of a political argument than an economic argument, but the main thing we would be concerned about is whether that is indeed the case, whether it is a national security issue to be able to produce this good, or whether that's just a convenient excuse that the lobbyists from that industry are using to continue to receive uh, effectively a subsidy from the government. That That is, the, the industry likes it when you levy tariffs on, on their things because it means they don't have to compete with... Cheaper foreign producers, so of course then they're going to hire their lawyers to make good arguments that seem plausible about why it's essential for national security or national identity or whatever that you keep producing this thing domestically. So one has to be cautious of that. Anyway, so that's tariffs. Another type of trade barrier are called quotas, and this is where instead of levying a tax on an import, you just say you're only, you or the country as a whole is only allowed to import X number, a thousand or a million or whatever, of this particular good in a given year, and once you've imported that many, then you can't import any more. Quotas and tariffs are really exactly the same as one another, or in other words, they have the same effect. They're implemented in different ways. One says you you have to pay a tax. The other one doesn't say you have to pay a tax. It just says you can't buy more than this amount. But it doesn't matter. If you think back to supply and demand, it doesn't matter if you restrict the quantity or if you restrict the price. It does the same thing. The effect is exactly the same. You get a reduction in in the amount of trade. You get an increase in the price. So the effects are the same either way. The only difference is that in the case of a tariff, the government gets the money, whereas in the case of a quota, the, the domestic producers get all the extra revenues. So quotas make even less sense than tariffs, because you don't even have that effect of, of government revenue generation. So they're generally used a fair bit less than tariffs because of that fact, although some, that's sometimes easy to implement. So quotas and tariffs probably receive the most attention in regard to trade barriers, because they are sort of the most obvious, or the most overt, but there are other types of barriers to trade as well, and these are often more subtle. So one type of one such type of trade barrier are subsidies to domestic producers which give them an advantage relative to foreign producers. This is almost like just the exact inverse of a sub of sorry of a tariff. In other words instead of taxing the foreign guy we won't tax the foreign guy but we'll give a subsidy to the domestic guy allowing him to sell at a lower price and also make higher profits for themselves. This is a barrier to trade in exactly the same way because it gives the domestic producers an artificial advantage relative to the foreign producers and therefore, um, misallocates resources. The opportunity cost is higher because we have to not only pay the, the consumers not only pay the price of buying the good, but they also pay an extra element to the price through their taxes that are used to being subsidized, that business. And a really good example of this are farm subsidies in developed countries, especially US and the European Union, which have very, Substantial farm subsidies. And the developing, many developing countries have complained bitterly about this in recent trade agreements because they are arguing that there's too much of a focus on tariff reductions, which is mainly what the developing countries have used, but not enough of a focus on subsidies, which are mainly what developed countries have used to prop up their domestic agricultural industries. Really, the effect of subsidies is, is just as problematic in terms of trade as tariffs and other things because it's it's restricting trade and it's distorting the allocation of resources so there's there's generally little justification for these sorts of subsidies although again arguments about national security and such things are raised as well another example of barriers to trade are local content laws generally this applies to media or tv stations and other things like that in that they must air a certain proportion of their content uh, that has been produced domestically and so they can't just they can't just air 100% of their programs From imported using imported material, they have to air you know 20% or whatever percent with domestic stations, and there's usually some argument about protecting national culture or something like that. Again, that that goes a bit outside of the purely economic side of it, but but the the the, what you'd have to be worried about is whether it's really an issue of protecting national culture or an issue of protecting the profit margins of powerful local media interests who have who are able to afford influential lawyers to push these sorts of laws through. The Economist would would worry about that sort of thing. So you, another way of thinking about this is one always has to look at the opportunity cost. How much are we paying in terms of lost benefit from the programs that we would like to see f- to protect this national culture or whatever it is that we think by protecting through ne- local content laws? What what's the opportunity cost? What are we giving up? And is it worth it to give this up? A couple of other types of trade barriers include government procurement policy. So this is an interesting case where it can be written into certain laws or either explicitly or just sort of be an implicit practice that when the government needs to buy something or needs to, needs to engage in some sort of contract with a private company, it has a preference for local products or for local firms over foreign ones. And I think a number of US programs have this preference for, for local firms uh, over foreign ones. I don't know exactly which ones, but I'm pretty sure I've heard about that before. Again, this is, this is just another variant of barriers to trade because there's no, there's no justification in terms of resource use why you would prefer domestic to foreign. What we should always prefer is that which has the lowest opportunity cost, because that means that if we use the one with the lowest opportunity cost, we can use resources more efficiently. And having a preference for local over imported or foreign products uh, simply acts as another barrier to trade which reduces resource efficiency use. And another type of trade barriers which can sometimes be relevant are packaging, labelling, and other safety laws. These are interesting because they have certainly a valid purpose, but they can sometimes be abused or at least have the unintended consequence of being biased against foreign importers. So, an example of this is if you re- require certain packaging or labeling or safety standards, which, uh, f- for imported goods, which are easier for domestic suppliers to meet than for foreign suppliers, then that is going to give an preference to domestic suppliers, thereby uh, introducing a barrier to trade. So, so this is one thing that I think the European Union has tried to do, which is make, uh, is to Reform these sorts of packaging and labelling laws so that they're consistent between countries, so you don't have this artificial barrier to trade. And then you get these sort of ridiculous questions coming up, like whether tomato sauce counts as a vegetable because, you know, what, what proportion of vegetables does a product have to use before it gets counts? It, it gets counted as a vegetable product and therefore is subject to this certain type of regulation and packaging laws, and and that has to be the same across different countries because otherwise you'll get a, a differential a cost a cost differential here and there, and all sorts of these other rather silly questions in my view but also necessary because you know these laws have to be made but the point is these sorts of difficult questions in classification and labeling copy can result in barriers to trade intentionally or unintentionally so uh, this is this is one thing that um a legislature should be aware of when they're making uh, these these types of laws okay so in the last couple of minutes i just want to talk about the concept of buy local which is i think important given the the topic of this episode. The concept of lo- buy local or local purchasing is that one should prefer to buy things that are produced locally, goods or services, especially food. There's a big focus on food, but, but not not it's not limited to food. Um, locally produced goods should be preferred to those produced further away. Now, one important point here is that advocates of this buy local position generally don't mean that you buy local when it's cheaper or when it's fresher or if it tastes better, because you would just do that anyway. That's just buying local because it's better. In other words, because it's obviously better for tangible reasons, in which case you're just buying a higher quality or a cheaper product. That's obviously not very interesting. Obviously, if you really value freshness, you buy local because it's fresher. Generally, what buy local advocates mean, though, is that even if this isn't the case, even if it's more expensive and doesn't taste any better, you should still buy local or should you have a preference for buying local because of other reasons. There are other reasons aside from taste or freshness or price that should induce you Uh, to to buy local. Uh, That's sort of what the core of the argument is, because if it's just a question of it's fresher, well, then that's just that you're just saying that the consumer should buy higher quality if they like the quality, but, you know, they would do that anyway. Now, one reason given for this is that locally produced goods require less transportation, which means less greenhouse gas emissions, and therefore it helps the environment. Another argument given in favour of buy local is that it supports the local community, because the profits stay in the community, the the tax revenue stay in the community, you have local jobs more likely to help out local charities uh, as a result of of revenues generated in the community. The profits don't go to some, you know, faceless overseas company or something like that, and then it used to benefit other people. That They are retained in the community. So that's sort of the second class of arguments, the type of community ones. And the third class of arguments given for Buy Local is that buying local promotes better working conditions, especially for farmers and factory workers, because in other countries, especially in, like, the third world, you have factory farms and sweatshops, and the conditions are much worse. So it's better to support local mum-and-pup stores and uh, local fresh farm, uh, you know, local small scale farms and that sort of thing because they have better conditions for, for workers and it's a nicer, nicer thing to have. So these are the three broad classes of argument. So environmental, community, and sort of work conditions. There may be others as well, but these are sort of three main ones that, that I've come across. Now, my purpose here is not to say whether this, these arguments are right or wrong or whether one should or should not buy local because that's, that incorporates too many issues of value judgments uh, for it to be a strictly scientific question. What I do think is relevant, though, is that when people make these sorts of claims, one needs to consider the opportunity costs of what one is doing in all of these cases. And So that's what I really wanted to highlight in this issue here, is that that if you're thinking about buy local or if you find these arguments persuasive, ensure that you're incorporating the concept of opportunity cost into your decision. And I just want to illustrate that, I think partly to illustrate the the gains from trade and also to illustrate the, the concept of opportunity cost. I think this is a good example. So again, I'm not trying to make an argument about whether buy a local is a good idea. I'm just trying to illustrate how we can use opportunity cost, I think, to, to make potentially make better decisions. Okay, so looking at first the environmental argument. So considering opportunity cost in relation to this argument, you would have to ask, well, what are we giving up when we pay a higher price to purchase goods that are made further away? Well, we're giving up a certain amount of money by paying the extra cost. What could have we done with that money instead? Well, one thing we could have done with it is donate it to some sort of environmental charity who could have then used it to promote an environmental cause. That might be more effective than paying a higher price for a locally produced good and therefore reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions. It all all depends on how effective you think these, these different methods of reducing greenhouse gas emissions or whatever are. And, you know, you can't necessarily say that without looking at the actual figures. But the point is, in order to make the correct decision, you would need to factor this in. You need to factor in the opportunity cost of what you're giving up. The economists would generally say that it's better to levy a tax on things like, say, greenhouse gas emissions, have some sort of carbon tax, because then in this way, if you levy the tax at the right, if the tax is set to the right level, then people will automatically buy local to the exact right amount. In other words, if it's, if it's just slightly more expensive to produce locally than overseas, then when you incorporate the tax, it actually becomes cheaper to produce locally. Again, cor- if you incorporate the tax into the analysis, and therefore people just buy locally naturally for those type of things. But for things where it's really, really expensive to buy locally, then people will still buy from overseas, because even when you incorporate the tax, it's still cheaper to buy overseas. So, so generally an economist would prefer a tax on, say, greenhouse gas emissions or pollutants or something like that, because it's a more efficient way of ensuring that you buy local just to the right amount. It certainly wouldn't be optimal to buy everything local, because that would be very inefficient. That would completely give up the advantages of, remember, comparative advantage. The opportunity costs of buying everything local would be far too high, and therefore a tax would allow us to determine exactly, just looking at the price, exactly how much buying local should be done. Again, that's assuming the tax is set at the right level and is enforced properly and, and these other things. Now, of course, if there is not such a tax, then that changes the analysis but regardless one still has to factor in the opportunity cost of, of what you could have done with those funds and whether whether buying local is is the best way of promoting the environmental objectives that, that you're trying to fulfill so moving on to the second argument about promoting community now here it's also very important to consider the opportunity cost so so first of all we have the, s- the same situation as before. You could buy the more expensive local product and then hope that there's some sort of flow-on effect of local jobs or whatever, or you could simply buy the cheaper non-local good and then donate the price difference to some sort of local community group or a shelter for the unemployed or something like that. Arguably, that's going to be much more effective because you can donate your the entire price difference to the local community group of your choice rather than just hoping that some proportion of it is going to eventually make some sort of difference. Now, m- there might be cases where uh, that that... That doesn't hold, but, but still, the point, the main point is, one needs to consider that opportunity cost. What are you giving up in purchasing the more expensive, the the more expensive non-local product? Well, you're giving up the opportunity to make a donation to some sort of local community group, for example. Also, the issue of retaining more profits and having more jobs in your community is potentially true. What one has to consider, though, is that means less jobs and less profits in some other community. Whether you think that it's more important to have jobs and profits and and benefits to your community compared to someone else's community, that's more of a moral question that we can't answer here. But again, the point is, you just have to consider that in your analysis. Maybe you don't care about communities on the other side of the world or on the other side of the country, and so that's not relevant to you in which case, yeah, you know, it would still make sense to buy local. But if that is relevant, you can't ignore that decision, you can't ignore that consequence when, when you're making the decision. So again, this issue of opportunity cost, what are you giving up to buy a non-local product? You're giving up the possibility to donate to a local community, you're giving up the benefits and extra jobs and profits and so on for some other community somewhere else. And the third reason that we discussed for uh, buy local was that it promotes better working conditions for farmers and, and factory workers and so on. So once again, one must consider the opportunity cost. So first of all what are you giving up if you buy a more expensive non-local good and and, and buy a local good in, uh, instead well first of all you're giving up the possibility of making some sort of charitable donation to a, a, con- a charity that helps people in the third world or helps improve working conditions or helps to treat malaria or something like that that might be more effective than just paying a higher price for a, a local good and, and hoping that the sort of um, and hoping that that has the same effect also another important factor is to consider that although the working conditions in Farms and sweatshops in other countries might not be as good as they are here. If they didn't have the factories, or if they didn't have those jobs, then they would, in most cases, be doing something even worse. So a classic example is that you know if if the people can't get jobs in the factories, well then what do they resort? What do they have to resort to 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 make enough money to survive? They have to resort to prostitution, or they have to resort to theft, or they have to resort to really hard agricultural labour, which is even worse. So, the point is, consider the opportunity cost. What are you giving up when you buy local instead of buying overseas? Well, you're giving up the jobs and the benefits that the people in these factory farms get. And they might not necessarily agree with you that that's been a net gain. They may not like their jobs that much, but they like it compared to the alternative. So, it's always a question of compared to what. So, the conditions in these factories and sweatshops and whatever might not be great, but might be better than the alternative. And again, that, that might not always be the case, but the point is, one should at least consider that when making the decision. You always have to consider the opportunity cost about what's being given up. So again, the main point I wanted to make here is not an argument against buy local per se, but merely to point out, to, to, to use this as a, a topical application of the, the principles of comparative advantage and the gains to trade to illustrate that we, that, that in making these sorts of arguments and making these decisions about whether to buy local or to, to buy foreign, to buy non-local, we must, if we want to make the correct decision, and you know make a decision consistent with reason and science we need to factor in all of the relevant costs and not just the ones that we can see most obviously and so that therefore requires taking into consideration opportunity costs that is the cost of what you give up to get something and you, when when you buy uh, non-local when, sorry when you buy local instead of non-local if you're paying more for the local good compared to what you would have otherwise paid then you're giving up something and you have to consider what that is and how valuable it is compared to what you're getting Okay, so that's all we have for this episode. I hope you learned a few things. If you like the podcast, then jump onto iTunes and give us a favorable review. I've had a few, but more are always helpful in spreading the word of the podcast. Also, you can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Science of Everything podcast. Give a page a like. On the Facebook page, you can find links to pictures and diagrams and other things that I've posted up for for past episodes to help with understanding. You know, I often say, if only I had a picture to explain this, well, I, I post up links to some diagrams and, and other pictures to help illustrate concepts on, on the Facebook page. Sometimes I'll post up references as well for some of, it, for some of the sources that I've used in preparing an episode, so, so check that out. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, complaints or suggestions, send me an email. My address is FODs12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.